True North True Crime is now available on Patreon. You can now listen to exclusive bonus episodes, early release episodes, and ad-free episodes by signing up at patreon.com slash tntcpod. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. On the southern tip of Vancouver Island sits the city of Victoria, British Columbia. This area has a deep, rich, and cultural history going back thousands of years. Every year, tourists flock to the city to learn and experience its beauty. But beneath the ornate flower pots and tree-lined streets lies a dark history of murders and deaths that continue to color the city's personality to this day. From Fantan Alley to the seventh hole of the Victoria Golf Course, it seems that there are many places where you might be able to take a peek beyond the veil. Tonight, we present the hauntings of Victoria, B.C., and you are listening to True North True Crime. Welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We've recently launched our Patreon subscription, so if you're looking for new ways to enjoy our podcast, check out our different tiers over on patreon.com slash tntcpod. If you're looking for other ways to enjoy True North True Crime, feel free to follow us on Instagram at tntcpod or on Facebook at True North True Crime. You can also send us an email or case suggestions at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. If you feel like helping out the podcast in another way, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're listening right now. It really does help with visibility. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are going to be talking about a few cases of suspected hauntings that have taken place in the city of Victoria, British Columbia. As many of you know, during October we like to take some time away from our regular coverage to embrace the Halloween season. We're both autumn nerds, and as soon as the temperature dips and the leaves start to fall, we pull out the sweaters and the warm beverages to settle in for a month of horror movies and pumpkin patches. We will, of course, be covering some very important cases through the winter starting in November, but for this month, we hope you enjoy this spooky detour. Tonight, rather than talking about one particular case, we are going to talk about one particular location. And in that location, there have been many haunting stories over the years. And we are, of course, talking about my hometown of Victoria, B.C. Victoria is the capital city of British Columbia, Located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, the city itself is beautiful and steeped in rich history. Unfortunately, some of that history is quite macabre. Rumors of hauntings and occult worship have persisted about Victoria for decades. We thought we would use this episode to jump into some of the lesser-known haunting stories that emanate from the annals of Victoria history. 
We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We were also inspired by the book The Haunting of Vancouver Island by researcher Shannon Sin. While we have done our best to authenticate these stories, some of the details have simply been lost to time. Most of these stories are not verifiable, but they are interesting stories or urban legends nonetheless. So sit back, sip a pumpkin spiced whatever, and enjoy the hauntings of Victoria, B.C. Our first tale is about a ghost named the Skull-Faced Bishop. Thousands of people flooded Victoria during the 1858 gold rush. A large portion of the populace was passing through, but hundreds of opportunists who had followed the prospectors stayed, transforming Victoria into a city overnight. There was a rapid expansion of bars and brothels, a prison soon after and then places of worship. One of those worship houses was St. Andrew's Cathedral, which stands to this day at the corner of U Street and Blanchard Street. This church is believed to be haunted to this day by the skull-faced bishop. Born in Ghent, Belgium on December 27, 1839, Charles John Segers became an ordained deacon on August 9, 1862, and in that same year transferred to the American College in Belgium. This college was founded to provide America with English-speaking clergymen. He responded to an appeal to work for the colony of Vancouver Island, then arriving in Victoria in 1863. By 1873, he was named Bishop of Vancouver Island. Although frail and in poor health, Segers hoped to work in Jesuit missions in the North American West. In 1877, he began a 14-month trip to the interior of Alaska during which time he delivered his message of God along Yukon River and near the Bering Sea. Upon his return to Victoria in 1878, he was appointed the Archbishop of the Diocese of Oregon City, Oregon, where he remained until he was returned to Vancouver Island in 1885. Sager was keen to continue his work as a missionary in the interior and the north, in the colonized land known as the Dominion of Canada. So he set out on another mission— he chose a travel team that included two Jesuit priests, along with a helpful church worker named Frank Fuller, a laborer who had worked in a number of the Jesuit missions. Some other co-workers objected to Sager's selection of Fuller because he was displaying signs of mental distress and paranoia. However, the bishop persisted. A strange occurrence happened while on the Yukon River. The cook who had shown to be a wonderful chef and travel companion, vanished mysteriously when they were setting up camp one night. After two days of searching, no information on the man's disappearance could be found. Frank Fuller, the laborer, did not like the cook and often fought with him. This led some to believe that Fuller had done something to the cook. This was the beginning in a string of events that would end tragically for the bishop. As the men traveled deeper into the Yukon, Fuller began to act in a more alarming manner. One of the Jesuits observed Fuller's paranoia and erratic behavior and begged the bishop to kick Fuller off of the travel team. The bishop disagreed, thus creating tension among the group. Several times Fuller was found talking to himself alone in the woods. In fact, one time he stated that the travel group was trying to kill him. He made bold accusations and stopped sleeping at night. Fatigue began to corrupt his mind. 
Again, the bishop's team demanded that Fuller be sent home. However, the bishop believed that he had the ability to calm Fuller and to keep him well. In fact, Bishop Sagers grew tired of the protests from the other Jesuits and sent them on a side mission, thus leaving himself alone with Fuller. The bishop and Fuller continued down the river, first by boat, then later by dog sled. Fuller again began to act erratically. He even threatened the guides who were assisting them through the terrain. Yet again, the frail old bishop waved aside any complaints about Fuller and decided to press on. According to the bishop's diary entries, he was aware of Fuller's behavior and had begun to document it. October 21st, Fuller accuses the bishop of trying to ruin him. November 12th, Fuller accuses the bishop of refusing to teach him Russian. November 24th, Fuller accuses the bishop of wishing him dead. The bishop's last entry noted that Fuller said the bishop would give him a bad name. On the morning of November 28, 1886, Bishop Seggers was collecting his belongings for the long morning trek. As he leaned over his bag, Fuller approached him from behind with a loaded rifle that was owned by the bishop. Fuller raised the bishop's own 44 caliber Winchester and fired a single shot that tore through the bishop's chest and heart, killing him instantly. Fuller was arrested and tried for manslaughter. He was sentenced to eight years in prison. In the spring of 1887, the bishop's body was transferred to Victoria to be buried on the grounds of St. Andrew's Cathedral. When it arrived, there was a street procession as thousands gathered to pay their respects to him. But the casket was never opened, because inside his face had been eaten by field mice. All that remained of the bishop's face was his skull, which seemed to smile while he was adorned in his bishop robes. Years after the bishop was buried, a man who was asked to work as a night watchman at the church shot and killed another man who was simply walking by. When asked why he committed the murder, the night watchman stated that he mistook the victim for a ghost. The ghost that he said he spotted was wearing church robes and had a skull for a face. For over 125 years, people have witnessed the ghost of Bishop Sagers inside the church and on its grounds. The bishop's ghost is one of Victoria's most frightful apparitions. A specter dressed as a priest glides across the cathedral's floor from out of the darkness. He occasionally just sits there and stares. A chill seeps through your chest when sitting in the pews of the cathedral as your eyes adjust to what lies in the shadows while the chilling sight of a laughing skull perched on the shoulders of a priest stares back at you. Many may discount the tale of a godly man choosing to haunt his own church, but there is a theory that he's not alone. It is believed that the restless soul of Frank Fuller, the bishop's murderer who died several years after he was released, has attached himself to the bishop in a type of purgatory. Much like the way the bishop would not abandon Fuller in life, perhaps the two men are forever bonded in death. This episode's second story is about Doris and Victor Gravelin. 
To the east of Victoria sits the historic and high-end neighborhood of Oak Bay. The streets of Oak Bay are lined with beautiful trees, quaint shops, gated communities, and old money mansions. This is a world that has long stood on ceremony. The good people of Oak Bay love memberships to high-end country clubs. For over a century, one of the most coveted memberships in Canada is the Victoria Golf Club. Victoria Golf Club established in 1893 and is now the oldest golf club in Canada, still located on its original site, a rocky point on the southeastern tip of Vancouver Island overlooking the Strait of Juan de Fuca. It is also one of Canada's few courses that is open for play an average of 360 days a year. Several holes provide unparalleled views of the ocean. One of the many perks of membership is the chance to see a ghost who has haunted the course for decades. This is the story of the April Ghost. Doris Gravelin was born in 1906. By the late 1920s, she was working as a nurse in Victoria, British Columbia. She was known to be friendly, kind, and caring. Doris fell in love with a man and got married. His name was Victor Gravelin. Victor was the sports editor and reporter for Victoria's newspaper, The Colonist. According to reports, Victor was a hard-nosed, hard-working, and hard-drinking journalist. He lived well, enjoying moments in high society. But he also, as we said, drank a lot. And when he drank, he could become volatile and violent. In 1929, Doris gave birth to their son, Walter. But by 1934, things started to unravel for Victor. His drinking was becoming a problem, and the newspaper fired him for quote-unquote health reasons. Most people understood this to be related to his drinking. The relationship with Doris was becoming volatile, and Doris made the decision to leave Victor. The couple were separated by 1936, and the separation was hard on both of them. While there were issues in the relationship, it seemed as though they were both hopelessly in love, despite their problems. Again, most of these problems trace back to Victor and his drinking. These problems were hushed up by friends and family. Doris left her job at a hospital and became a private nurse for a wealthy woman named Kathleen Richardson in the Oak Bay neighborhood. Despite the separation, the couple had spoken of reconciling. Family members also encouraged that the couple work things out. On the evening of September 22, 1936, Victor, who was living with his parents, told them that he intended to meet Doris to try to fix their relationship. Doris got dressed at home to meet Victor. She put on a pair of children's-sized white running-style shoes. Kathleen Richardson, the elderly person who Doris was caring for, said goodnight and watched Doris leave. Doris, who was now 30 years old, met with Victor, who was 36, at the Oak Bay Beach Hotel. The hotel had a cute English-style pub called The Snug, which was their favorite place. The two had drinks and shared time together. Around 10 p.m. after drinks, they decided to go for a walk and enjoy the night air. As the couple strolled down Beach Drive, they took a slight right where Beach Drive curves and splits through the Victoria Golf Course. There are fairways on both sides. On their right was the main course and clubhouse. On their left were the more scenic holes that caressed the ocean coastline. One of these holes is hole number seven. Hole 7 is a scenic par 4 that slopes down towards the ocean. 
In the daytime, it brings breathtaking views of Mount Baker and the Salish Sea. As they walked along Beach Drive and passed the seventh hole, Doris and Victor disappeared into the night. One single witness reported hearing an anguished scream. Two days later, both of their families reported them as missing. Five days later, Doris's body was found near the shoreline grass at the seventh tee of the Victoria Golf Club. It was discovered by a caddy named John Johnson, who was looking for an errant ball. First, he noticed a woman's sweater lying near the beach. As he picked it up, he looked in horror as he saw Doris's lifeless body laying on the shore. Police arrived at the scene and their investigation determined that Doris Gravelin had been murdered near the seventh tee in a patch of wild broom. She had been beaten and strangled to death. Her body was dragged from the golf course down to the beach. Both of her shoes were missing and a large club-like piece of driftwood lay beside her. At this point, Victor was still considered a missing person, albeit a suspicious one. Search parties still continued to look for him, which included a local Boy Scout troop. Then, on October 25th, one month after Doris was discovered dead, the body of Victor Gravelin was also discovered, a fisherman rowing along the coastline near the ninth tee of the golf course came across something tangled in a bed of kelp. It was Victor Gravelin. He had been dead for a month. His body was badly rotting and decomposing in the waters of the Pacific. Having determined that he was dead for a month, it was clear that that was the exact amount of time since Doris's murder. Also, inside of Victor's pockets were Doris's shoes that had been missing from her body. For the authorities, this was an open-and-shut case. Investigators believed that Victor was severely depressed over his marital and drinking problems and his employment issues, and that he murdered his wife and then drowned himself. But while this murder was over for the living authorities, the pain remained for the dead. One of the first Victorians to see Doris Gravelin following her passing was a fisherman casting from Gonzales Point, an area near the golf course. The reason the fisherman turned around and looked up at the bank and the fairway was unknown. He did, however, notice a woman gazing out towards the kelp beds. Despite being barely a few feet away, she paid him no attention at all. He was unable to figure out her purpose for being there right away. The light was dwindling quickly and the fisherman only noticed what he subsequently described as a white dress in addition to the depressing expression on her face. He carried on casting. She remained silent. He too remained silent, and then she ran down as if she were going to meet someone, and on the way she vanished. I kind of saw her melt away, the fisherman said. People started seeing Doris's ghost on the golf course by the following spring. Her sightings became more frequent and started to follow a pattern in the 1960s. Along the rocky shore, she was observed standing. She was often seen wearing a sheer white bridal gown. Her spirit remained motionless for some minutes, wistfully gazing out to the sea. More people began to report seeing Doris's melancholy ghost, frequently young people who had gone to the golf course in hopes of seeing her. She was observed as a hazy, luminous apparition floating over the coastline. Sightings were occasionally accompanied by abrupt temperature drops and a chilling breeze. 
it wasn't unusual for groups of people to witness the same thing at the same time. In the 1970s, a ghost tour guide took a small group on a tour of the golf course in search of Doris. As the tour guide was leaving, a cold hand clasped hers. She turned, thinking it was a member of her tour. As she turned around to see who was there, there was no one. There have been many more reports of Doris sightings throughout time. On the course, she can be seen at any time of the year, but March and April seem to be her favorite. She is reported to stroll around the course in old-fashioned clothing in the late afternoon. The afternoon sightings are said to be more human-like, but at dusk and into the night, she takes on a more ethereal form in a white dress. She also has a reputation for leaving footprints in the sand bunkers. Going to this golf course at night to look for Doris has become a rite of passage for young couples. According to another part of the legend, if you ring the brass bell situated between the 6th and 7th hole, you can summon the April ghost. Couples who see Doris are said to be cursed and break up within a short period of time afterwards. In the modern day, perhaps the best way to see or feel her presence is to drive down Beach Drive on a warm spring night with your windows open. Motorists have reported driving through the area and feeling what they refer to as cold air near the seventh hole, even though the night temperature is warm. And thus is the tale of the April ghost. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will hear about the haunting of the Chateau Victoria and a murder in the historic Fantan Alley. And we are back. Our next haunting does not involve a crime, but there is something odd about this story. It's the story of a young girl who was isolated her whole life, but to this day she greets guests at one of Victoria's best-known hotels. The Chateau Victoria Hotel stands at the corner of Burdette and Blanchard Streets. It's 18 stories tall with 176 rooms. The hotel is situated behind the historic Empress Hotel and was built in 1975. But long before it was a hotel, it was a family home. Mary Monroe was the daughter of Alexander Monroe, who came from a wealthy fur trader family. Mary would go on to marry James Keith Wilson, who was the manager of the Bank of British Columbia. After the two were married, James began to dabble in real estate. He bought a plot of land at 730 Burdette Street the same plot of land where the Chateau Victoria sits today. On that plot of land, James built a three-story home known as the White Mansion. The house was filled with antique furniture, large crystal chandeliers, large heavy mirrors, fine china, ornate pillars, hand-carved staircases, and elaborately sculpted ceilings. In 1887, James and Mary had their first and only child, a daughter named Victoria Jane Wilson. Upon having his first child, James became overly concerned with his daughter's safety. He built high walls around the mansion to keep his family safe. As her life moved along, Victoria was rarely allowed to leave the house. She was homeschooled and most of her friends were adults or nannies. As Victoria grew older, James became more paranoid and overprotective of his daughter. But he loved her and doted on her. 
Due to the family's immense wealth, Victoria wanted for nothing. She had the best dresses and toys and the best education. But Victoria was lonely. On her fifth birthday, James surprised Victoria with a South American-born parrot named Louis. Louis quickly became Victoria's best friend. Estimates put Louis's age at 20 when he came into Victoria's life, and by all accounts, Louis became a bit of a foul-mouthed parrot who was often drunk after eating brandy-soaked walnuts. Louis was a blue and yellow macaw, which are among the largest of the parrot species. They can weigh between 900 and 1800 grams and have a wingspan of up to 1.5 meters. They are often very intelligent, talkative, good mimics, playful, and entertaining, which is why macaws have been kept as pets for centuries. It's commonly known that macaws have a long lifespan. Some can live well past 100 years old. Victoria loved Louis, and he became a surprising substitute for human friends. Most of the human visitors to the White Mansion were James's business partners. Victoria's mother, Mary, had been cut off from the rest of her family due to a dispute, so Victoria rarely interacted with other kids and never spent time with her cousins. As the years passed, Victoria Jane Wilson's passion for birds intensified. The Victoria Times colonist reported that as a young woman, Wilson owned 26 budgies, 6 lovebirds, at least 4 Panamanian parrots, and a Mexican yellow-headed parrot. Eventually, her collection occupied the mansion's entire top floor, and in 1917, when Victoria was 40 years old, her mother died. And then, in 1934, her father James also died. It was then that Victoria, now 57 years old, began to venture outside of the mansion. Her entire life she had spent as a wealthy recluse, surrounded by art and her birds, but now a newfound freedom came her way. She began to entertain guests from Victoria's high society, but never at her home. She hosted many intimate dinner parties at the nearby Empress Hotel. For some reason, the people were never invited into the White Mansion. Victoria could also be seen going around town on elaborate shopping trips draped in a sable coat. Her closets were filled with clothing items that she never wore. One time, she bought an expensive electric car. She thought it would be good for Lewis to go for a drive, but Lewis hated it. He didn't like the noise or the fumes from the other gas vehicles. So, Victoria didn't use the car ever again. In fact, she sold it. But despite her adventures in public life, Victoria preferred to be at home. Many nights she spent in her chair sipping brandy and watching her birds with her cat Fagin by her side. Victoria Wilson died of natural causes in 1949. She left a house full of antiques, closets filled with clothing and hats, drawers of gloves and an estate of nearly half a million dollars, equivalent to $5.5 million today. Much of it, $340,000, went to charities including the Red Cross, the Royal Jubilee and Queen Alexandra Hospitals, and a BC orphanage. But what was unique was what her will had planned for Lewis. She earmarked the equivalent of $700,000 for Lewis's care. This included a human caretaker named Mr. Wong who would watch him for his natural life. Another stipulation was that Lewis was to never be removed from the White Mansion. He was to live out his days there. 
It is believed that Lewis was about 80 when Victoria died. So many real estate developers tried to gamble. They would buy the property hoping that Lewis would die, but he didn't. Three different developers bought and sold the property without being able to demolish the white mansion, which by now was in decay. Even Mr. Wong passed away before Lewis. Eventually, through litigation, Lewis was removed from the house and it was demolished. In 1966, the ground was cleared for construction of the Chateau Victoria Hotel, which opened in 1975. And of course, its rooftop restaurant was named the Parrot House, in honor of Lewis. Mr. Wong's family continued to take care of Lewis, and he is said to have lived a happy and pampered life. He passed away in 1985. His age was estimated at 115 years old. But it would appear as if Victoria has refused to leave the grounds of 730 Burdett Street. Perhaps it's because she spent her whole life as a recluse on the property from birth until death. Or perhaps it's because it is the last place that she left her beloved Lewis. No matter the reason, since early in the hotel's existence, staff have felt her presence. Employees have noticed an old-fashioned lady at the main floor bar who vanishes as quickly as she appears. Victoria appears dressed in her finest clothing. She sits in her chair with a brandy in her hand, in the same way she did when she would sit and admire her birds. Then, she disappears. Guests have also noticed odd things in the hotel. Some have complained of a presence in the elevator with them. Then, the elevator suddenly stops for no reason, only to commence again. Others still report doors suddenly opening and closing as they walk down the hallway. So does Victoria Jane Wilson haunt the grounds of 730 Burdett Street? She specifically asked that Lewis not be removed, and he was. Is her spirit restless that Lewis was disrupted? Or perhaps she just can't leave the place in death that she can never leave in life. This episode's last story takes place in Fantan Alley. Located just a 14-minute walk west from the Chateau Victoria is Chinatown. Victoria's Chinatown is one of the most historic in the world. Around 1858, people flooded into Victoria in an effort to join the gold rush that was booming in the Klondike. People from China were hoping for a better life. They were escaping famine and drought, and the journey across the Pacific seemed a well-calculated risk. By 1911, Chinatown grew steadily until it occupied an area of about six city blocks in the north end of downtown Victoria, with a population of about 3,200 people. While this Chinatown is small compared to others, it is mighty with a long and rich history. The infrastructure included apartments, shops, restaurants, merchants, opium dens, brothels, gambling parlors, and a labyrinth of underground tunnels. Located in the heart of Chinatown is a narrow passageway known as Fan Tan Alley. Fan Tan Alley was known as the Gambling District. The laneway is 240 feet long, 4 foot 6 inches at its widest point and only 35 inches wide at its thinnest, making it the narrowest street in all of Canada. In 1889, a 17-year-old man named Chan Wan 
had recently arrived in Canada. He did not have much in the way of family here. He settled into the area of Chinatown. He had secured a job cleaning rooms and doing laundry at the American Hotel. Fellow employees recalled that he was hardworking, but often sad that he had not met someone to spend his life with. While walking home one night, Chan saw a beautiful girl sitting in a window. Her name was Yao Kim. Yao was near to Chan's age. Her life was harder than Chan's, though. Since arriving in Canada, she had been sold to a brothel. The window that she was sitting in was where she worked at night. The first night Chan saw Yao, he could not believe his eyes. To him, she was so beautiful. She smiled at him, and he smiled back. That night, he said nothing to her. He just smiled and walked back to his apartment. The next night when he got off work, he walked by her window again, and there she was. He smiled, she smiled, and then he went home. This went on for weeks, until one day he spoke to her. They smiled and laughed as they spoke, and then Chan went home. On one night, Chan brought some food with him, determined to make a good impression. Yao thanked him. They ate together, and then Chan went home. Chan became obsessed with Yao, but he was poor. Yao was also poor, and this meant that Chan had nothing to offer Yao in the way of getting her out of servitude. She was essentially owned by her brothel owners. There was no way that Chan could afford to free her from her life, but he could not get Yao out of his mind. One night, Chan devised a plan. If he could just convince Yao to marry him, he believed that the two could escape their lives in Chinatown, that they could start a new life together and be happy. He was in love, and he needed to express his love to Yao. Chao knew the brothel owners would never let Yao leave, so he obtained a vial of poison that he would use to murder the brothel owners. The problem with his plan was that he never asked Yao how she felt about him or marriage or murder or any of his plan. One night, Chan went to work at the hotel. Obsessive, he rehearsed his proposal over and over again with the vial of poison in his pocket. Finally, his shift was over, and with a jump in his step, he walked to Yao's window in Fantan Alley. Confidently, he approached her. Chan expressed his love for Yao and asked her to marry him. Yao was shocked. She explained that she could not leave the brothel and that if she did, the owners would find her and kill her. It was then that Chan told her his plan. He handed her the vial of poison. He told her to put the poison on the meals of the brothel owner and his wife so that she and Chan could be together. Yao realized Chan was serious, but he was penniless and she could not see the benefit of being with him. She also knew the penalty for murder would be death by hanging. Yao told Chan to go away and never come back. Chan felt publicly humiliated and became more obsessed. This time he was more obsessed with the humiliation rather than his alleged love for Yao. For days he crept around the buildings of Chinatown with a friend and spied on Yao. One night, he and his friend prowled near the window where she always sat. Chan became convinced that the only way to save face was to murder Yao, the woman that he claimed to love. Along with a friend, Chan snuck up on Yao as she sat in her window. Chan's friend grabbed Yao by the hair and pulled her from the window. Chan then raised a large butcher knife 
and cut Yao's head off with it. Chen's friend was in shock. He thought that they were only going there to scare Yao. Yao lay dead in a pool of blood on the ground of the Fantan Alley. Chan ran away through all the narrow alleyways and escaped through the back of the hotel where he worked. He passed by the hotel owner as he fled. Chan was not seen for the next two days. In fact, he missed two days of work. The hotel owner remembered seeing Chan running past him. It was then that the police had entered the hotel and presented the hotel owner with a wanted poster. The poster offered a $150 reward for a murder in Chinatown. It described Chan perfectly. The hotel owner told the police that he believed Chan was in the building. After a long search of the hotel, the police found Chan in the basement hiding in a coal bin. His clothes were covered in blood. Chan was arrested and jailed and then hanged himself with his shirt in his prison cell two days later. According to the legend, Chan was not afforded the same spiritual rights that ward off demons and ease the spirits of the dead, so his tormented soul is said to walk the streets of Victoria's Chinatown at night. There have been encounters of Chan's spirit in Fantan Alley. Witnesses typically hear footsteps approaching them from behind. Then, when they turn, they see Chan's ghost walking towards them. He has a determined look on his face. His clothing and face are covered in blood and coal soot. In his right hand is a long blade. He passes through the alley, pushing through people who are blocking his way without seeming aware of them, and then fades away. This brings us to the end of this episode. Victoria is my hometown, so I always enjoy getting a chance to share with people some of its history, no matter how absurd or perhaps even fictional. We hope you enjoyed listening to our October suite of Halloween-inspired episodes as much as we enjoyed researching and recording them. Hopefully this month you've been able to do some fun fall activities with your friends, family, and loved ones. Thank you as always for supporting the podcast. We will be back soon with more True North True Crime as we bring you some important cases that we have been working on. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay spooky.